Well, I shared with a couple of people this past week that this is the longest stretch I've gone without preaching since I was 23. So I wasn't sure if I was going to be nervous or not coming back up to preach. But I remembered uh, the night that, the day that I was baptized. I remember before sharing my testimony, I was so nervous to go up front and to speak. And I remember my mouth was paper, it was just dry. I'm, I'm sure my knees were shaking. And I remember I asked Pastor Dave if he still ever got nervous going up to speak. And, and his answer stuck with me. He said, no, I never get nervous to go up and speak in front of people anymore. I just get nervous about making sure that I'm saying what God wants me to say. And that always stuck with me because I can identify with that this morning. That it's not, you don't get nervous to be in front of people, but the, the, the nervousness, if you will, is to make sure that I'm in line with what God wants me to, to speak. And I pray that I am for this morning and for this message and that God would speak to our hearts. So would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we do pray that this word would be living and active as you have promised it would be, that it would speak to our hearts and that what you have laid specifically on my heart to share this morning, Lord, help me to speak it clearly and boldly as you have commanded and that we would receive it as from you. So work in our hearts, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was cold, it was wet, and it was cramped for the prisoner huddled on the hard stone floor of the lowest level of the Tullianum prison. A cold spring bubbled up in the corner of his claustrophobic cell. A small torch flickered on the wall, casting a feeble light across the small piece of parchment upon which the condemned man prepared to write his final words. Though it was called a prison, the Tullianum prison was better described as a dungeon. It was only two cells, one stacked on top of the other. The only way into the lowest underground dungeon was by a small hole cut in the ceiling through which the prisoner would be lowered down by a rope. It was reserved for only the highest value prisoners that were deemed a threat to Rome. And once confined there, the only question that remained for the prisoner was the method of their execution. For some, it came through the mercifully swift means of beheading. But for others, it came by the excruciatingly slow and painful death by crucifixion. The prisoner hunched down on the stone floor was old, or at least had the appearance of an old man as the many years showed on the lines and the scars across his weathered face. And yet his eyes still sparked with vitality. But then just as quickly they would cloud over in tears as his mind traveled back over the many years and the many journeys that had led up to this final moment of his life in a dungeon, betrayed, abandoned, condemned, and utterly alone. He had always longed to once again visit that great city of Rome and see his dear friends living there. But he had, of course, hoped that it would be under much different and better circumstances than these. And yet there he sat, imprisoned in Rome's darkest dungeon, no longer even sure whether it was day or night. His only constant companions were the cold, the hunger, and the rats. But those he hardly even noticed anymore. For this was certainly not the man's first time finding himself confined in a prison cell. Far from it. 
In fact, he had all but lost track of the many times that he had been imprisoned or chained or put on public display in stockades over the many years. Yet on all those other occasions, a way of escape had been provided, and he was eventually released and continued on. But deep down in his heart, this time he knew it was different. This was it. The end of his long journey was finally at hand. And at any moment, the sound of the jailers coming for him would break the silence. He would be taken away and executed. But though his time had come and his earthly journey was coming to an end, he regretted nothing and his heart was strangely at peace. And so under the flickering torchlight in that Roman dungeon, the Apostle Paul began to write some of his final recorded words, a letter to Timothy his dear son in the faith, to whom he wrote, For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. At my first defense, no one came to my support, But everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so, according to church history, ends the final earthly chapter of the Apostle Paul's life. Completely and utterly dedicated to the mission the Lord had given him, dedicated to declaring the gospel right up to the very end. Now, I have a question for us to consider as we think of this final moment of the Apostle Paul's life. What motivated Paul to keep going in such difficult and trying circumstances? Why would he persevere on with such dedication and determination and just sheer grit and willpower right to the very end? What was Paul's perspective on life that so motivated him to live such a radically different life than nearly everyone else around him? To live in such a way that his own personal comfort or safety or even his own life, was hardly an afterthought in the face of any trial or danger or threat that he faced. Well, Paul tells us himself in the book of Acts, chapter 20 and verse 24. There he said, I consider my life worth nothing to me. There's a mouthful. I consider my life worth nothing to me. Well, someone might hear that and say, well, Paul, are you suicidal? No, he's not suicidal. Listen to the next phrase. I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. So what's the task? Here it is. The task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. We talk about mission statements a lot, and this is the mission statement of Paul's life. 
the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Everything in Paul's life was aimed at completing that task that Jesus had given to him. You see, Paul's only aim, his life's sole ambition, was to complete this task and to complete it right to the very end. See, Paul's life was truly the epitome of someone with a gospel-centered, gospel-focused perspective on life. And so all of this begs two questions that I'm going to pose for us and then seek to answer this morning. The first question is simple. What is the gospel? What is it? We talk about it all the time. We have all sorts of different uh, shorthand that we use for this term. What is it? We're going to get into that. Secondly, how can we develop a gospel-centered perspective for our own lives? So once we understand what the gospel is, how can we have it the way that Paul had it? That it would be the very center of how we look at all of life, that we can have a gospel-centered perspective. So now turn with me to the book of Romans. And as we do, we'll hit the rewind button on Paul's life. And we're going to go back some 10 years from the year 67 AD when he was in that dark Roman dungeon, back to the year 57 AD when Paul was spending time with the believers at the church in Corinth. Now, while he was wintering there in Corinth, he was in this home of an especially hospitable man named Gaius. Now, Paul wrote from Gaius's house this now famous letter to the fledgling church in Rome. Now, to our knowledge, Paul had not yet visited Rome when he wrote this letter. But he was so eager to visit them, and he eagerly hoped that following his visit to Rome, he was then going to go on even further into Europe and go all the way to Spain, where he hoped to bring those Gentiles the gospel as well. And so Paul wrote this letter to them as a way of introducing himself and his theology, as well as to convey to them how eager he was to come and visit. And so in his opening remarks in Romans chapter 1 and verses 11 to 12, he writes, uh, he conveys the eager, the eagerness he has to see them. He writes in verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And then in verse 15, he continued, that is why I am so eager to come and preach the gospel to you. And so here Paul is wanting to convey to them all of his his eagerness, his his anticipation, his joy in coming to see them. And this is just, I can only imagine the kind of man that Paul was, but this anticipation and enthusiasm just bubbles up out of him as he is writing this letter. Now in just the first 17 verses of this personal introduction, Paul mentions the gospel no less than six times. And this makes it abundantly clear that Paul's primary focus was making certain that these new Roman believers had a clear, solid understanding of the gospel, what it is and what it does. So we ask now that question, what is the gospel? Well, it's actually quite simple. It's quite simple. It's translated from the Greek word, euangelion, from which we derive the word evangelism, So this word, euangelium, gospel, it means one thing, good news. The gospel is good news. That is what the word means. That is how it is used. The gospel message of Jesus Christ is the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what it means. 
But now the, the secondary meaning of the word euangelion is coupled to the first. The good news, but then it's coupled to it. The secondary meaning is to declare the good news. The two are joined at the hip. Whenever the gospel is, is presented, it is declared. It is not just a static thing. It is something that is declared. It is spoken. And so the, the verses like, how blessed are the feet of them, or how beautiful are the feet of them who bring good news. They're beautiful because they're bringing good news to declare it, to speak it out. And so quite simply, good news in the, in the New Testament, the biblical uh, understanding of it, good news is meant and designed to be shared. Have you ever received news, good news, that was just so good and so exciting to you that the moment you heard it, you just couldn't help but immediately tell others about it. Like when you receive this news, your first, your first instinct is like you let out a hoot and a holler and you're picking up the phone to just call people because you have to tell them. You've ever had news like that? I think some of you have. And we could go down a list of like what type of good news have you had in your life? Like that was so good. Like maybe it was the birth of that first grandchild and you're just pumped and you're hooting and hollering and you can't wait to tell everyone. Or maybe it was someone who's been battling cancer and that, that news comes that it's gone and they are declared free of cancer and there's just a celebration. It is good news and you're telling everyone that you meet. Well, there's a true story told that in 1991, at the height of Operation Desert Storm during the first Gulf War, a mother named Ruth Dillow received the worst news that any military mom can receive. It was the dreaded yellow telegram from the Pentagon. And the telegram stated that her son, Clayton Dillow, had stepped on a landmine in Kuwait and was killed in action. Ruth later wrote these words. I can't begin to describe my grief and my shock. It was almost more than I could bear. For three days, I just wept and wept. I expressed anger and loss. For three days, people tried to comfort me, but nothing worked. The loss was simply too great to bear. But then three days after she received the message, the phone rang. Ruth numbly picked it up, expecting it to be yet another family member calling to express their sympathies. But instead, the familiar voice on the other end of the line said the words that changed everything. Mom, it's me. It's Clayton. I'm alive. Ruth later said, I couldn't believe it at first. But then he kept talking and I recognized his voice and I realized he was really alive. The message had been sent in, in mistake I began to laugh, I cried, I felt like turning cartwheels across my living room floor because my son, who I thought was dead, was actually alive. And she then immediately proceeded to hoot and holler, run around her neighborhood, yelling to her neighbors that her son was alive. She picked up the phone and began calling everyone that her son, who she believed for three days was dead, was alive and he was coming home. Well, in almost exactly the same way, that is the good news of the gospel. That after three days in the grave, by the power of God, Jesus was raised back to life. And now he's alive forevermore. And it proves that everything Jesus said is true. 
The resurrection, we sang it this morning. Because he is alive, everything he said is true. He is the Son of God. God has come not to condemn this world, but to bring us forgiveness through his Son. And that was achieved on the cross. And now the debt is paid. His resurrection proves the wrath of God is satisfied. And now we can enter into this forgiveness, into this new life. And this is the good news of the gospel. That, my friends, like the mom who had her son come back to life, as it were, that is news worth sharing. For Paul, that news defined his entire life. Whether he ate, whether he drank or slept, I'm sure he dreamt about the gospel. Everything he did centered on this good news. He never stopped thinking about it, and he certainly never, ever stopped talking about it. I I think anyone within earshot of Paul for any length of time could expect to hear the good news of the gospel, whether they liked it or not. In fact, there's, there's stories and accounts where he is, you know, preaching to prison guards. And, well, they're kind of shackled to him because in some cases they literally were. Where he would say, I am in chains for the gospel. That wasn't a metaphor, it was literal. And so Paul would be there preaching to a captive audience, literally. A, a prison guard has to sit there and hear the gospel. And you know what? Some of them were saved because he wouldn't stop talking about it. It's kind of like, you know how... I'm not going to say all farmers, but many farmers, you know how they never stop talking about farming? (laughs) Those of you who aren't farmers know what I'm talking about, and those of you who are farmers have to accept that, yes, you talk about farming a lot. Well, that's Paul with the gospel. Except for Paul, rather than discussing, you know, things like seed varieties and fertilizer rates and yields, Paul discussed things like sanctification, justification, and substitutionary atonement. Come on, this is good stuff. And so in Romans chapter 1, verse 1, I want you to listen to how Paul introduces himself to them and to us. This is how he introduces himself. He writes, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, and set apart for the gospel of God. So this is how, this is how Paul viewed himself. First, he, he viewed himself as a servant, or better translated, as a slave of Christ. He's not a free man. Yes, he's free in Christ, but he, he owes his entire allegiance, his life to Christ. He views himself as a slave of Christ, called to be an apostle. An apostle meaning someone who saw Jesus directly. So he called himself the least of the apostles, of course, because he didn't walk with Jesus. He only met him the one time, to our knowledge, on the road to Damascus. But then finally, he then says, this is the mission of my life. I am set apart. That word is actually derived from the word holy, meaning you're set apart for one thing, holy to the gospel of God. And you could play with the spelling on that as well, W-H-O-L-E, that his whole life was for the gospel. Any way you want to look at it, this is Paul's mission. This is his focus. This is what he is about. Everything else in life was of secondary importance to the gospel. He then continues on in his introduction. And he skips uh, anything more personal for the, for the time being. And in verses 2 to 6, he then in one mouthful gives a summary of the good news. 
And, and if you take note in your Bibles and look closely, it's one giant run-on sentence. Now, if you, if you like good grammar, this isn't good grammar because he doesn't take a breath. There's no periods of this entire paragraph in verses 2 to 6 because he rattles off how the coming of God's Son was promised beforehand through the prophets, how as a descendant of David, Jesus was both fully man and yet by the Spirit declared fully the Son of God, how he died and rose again, and finally, how through him we receive grace and a calling to belong to Jesus Christ through faith. Well, it just seems like when Paul even mentions the gospel, he just gets so excited he has to explain it in the next mouthful. He's just got to get it out. Even before 16 chapters of talking about it, he's got to give them a summary right up front. And so this is Paul's life. This is in his DNA. And we see his enthusiasm in every way for the gospel, that this is good news. And so now, second, we move on to our second question. We see how it embodied Paul. His, his entire life was wrapped up in the gospel. It changed how he looked at everything, how he lived. How can we be like Paul? How can we develop a gospel-centered perspective for our own lives. Well, it has to begin with this. It has to begin with a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. It has to begin with a personal encounter with Jesus Christ and the saving power of God. Now, you'll recall that in Paul's former life, known as Saul, and Saul the persecutor was not a nice man, at least not to Christians. Because we know that he's, he went out of his way to persecute them, to hunt them down. In fact, that is what he was doing while on the road to Damascus, where he encountered Jesus in a very personal way, but in a, not in the way that we would like with a soft touch, or probably not in the way that Saul wanted that day. He certainly wasn't expecting it. It was a hard touch. It was the boom, you're down flat on the ground, blind, literally blind by the power of God. But while in that moment, as he encounters the resurrected Christ who has knocked him to the ground, blinded his eyes, in that moment, Saul, I'm sure, recognized that he had got it all wrong. He had got it all wrong. Jesus was in front of him declaring that I am, I am alive, I'm right in front of you, and here you've been persecuting me. And in that moment, I am sure that Saul realized that he deserved nothing less than God's judgment Death and damnation right then and there. He thought he'd been doing God's work, and in fact, he had been doing the devil's work. All of this is flooding Saul in that moment, and he realizes he, he's lost. He's condemned. There's no hope for him. But what does he receive instead? He receives from the Lord Jesus mercy. Now, mercy is not getting what we deserve. So he receives mercy. He didn't get what he deserved. Then he received grace. And grace is receiving what we don't deserve. Okay? So mercy is not getting what we deserve, and grace is receiving what we don't deserve, and that is forgiveness and salvation. And so he receives grace. He receives pardon. He receives forgiveness. And he receives salvation. And that one moment of personal encounter with Jesus Christ and that power of God, the power of the gospel, it so radically changed Paul's entire perspective on everything 
that it entirely changed the trajectory of his life. And so, too, for each one of us. That is where the change of perspective must begin, is with a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul declared, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Paul personally experienced that power of God for his own salvation. And for that reason, he would never again, for a single moment of his life, live in any shame about the gospel. No matter how much it cost him, no matter how much people made fun of him, mocked him, ridiculed him, he would not be ashamed because he had experienced its power in a personal way. So let me ask you, have you received that salvation? Have you personally encountered Jesus Christ for yourself? Now, if you have, it most likely wasn't in quite as drastic a way as it was for Paul, who was knocked down on the road and physically blinded. At least it wasn't quite that drastic for me, and it likely wasn't that drastic for you. However, if you have, like Paul, exercised your faith to believe the good news about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and committed yourself to following him, then in just as real a way as it was for Paul on the road to Damascus, you also have received the power of God unto salvation. It's just as real in your life as it was in Paul's life. And so if it is just as real, then you also have received God's mercy. You have received his grace. You have received his eternal salvation, declared righteous to stand before a holy God without fault or blemish or stain because we are hidden and clothed in the righteousness of Christ who did it all. And we have nothing to add to that. We just believe it. And in verse 17, Paul continues, For in the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that, listen, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Notice, we'll get into this much later in the book. A righteousness that is not by works. It's not by works. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. In that first to last he's referring to, it's that way all the way back to the beginning. All the way back to Abraham. It wasn't about works. All the way back to Moses, it wasn't about works. All the way back to Adam and Eve, it wasn't about works. From first to last, a righteousness that is by faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. A righteousness that comes not from ourselves, a righteousness that comes from Christ. So if right now in this moment you realize that you have not yet encountered Jesus in a personal way, there's more good news. And the good news is that you can do it any time. You can meet him any time. In fact, you can meet him this morning in a personal way. Coming to him through faith. Believing what he did on the cross. Believing that he rose from the dead. Believing that he is who he said he was. The son of God. The savior of the world. And you can come to him any time, even right now this morning. My friends, that is good news. And it's good news that applies to everyone. It's good news that applies to people who aren't in church this morning as well. In fact, probably it applies to people who aren't in church this morning, our neighbors down the street, those who have not yet met Jesus in a personal way, 
they need to hear that good news. They need to hear the good news. We don't need to convince them of the good news. They just need to hear the good news, and that's where we come in. Just like the mom who had the good news about her son, it was too good not to share. Heaven is too good not to share, my friends. We don't have to convince anyone. We just have to share this good news. If it's real for me, then we should share it. In the 18th century, a young member of the Anglican Church of England, who by his own admission was not yet a born-again Christian, he was involved in the works of religion, but he had not yet encountered the risen Christ. He went as a missionary for the Church of England to the American colony of Georgia. And he was going to evangelize the pagan American natives. And while foolishly not realizing that he was still a pagan himself. And this man's name was John Wesley. And unsurprisingly to us, he was a complete failure as a missionary. Not one person came to faith as a result of his work. And so, a failure, he gets back on a ship and sets sail for London. But halfway across the Atlantic Ocean, the ship encounters a terrible storm, and the boat is being tossed and thrown about by the waves, and they were afraid they were going to sink and drown. And John Wesley became suddenly afraid that he was going to die, and that if he should die, he would not be going to heaven. And so there, in the grip of terror, wondering about his own salvation, he then looked over at a group of Moravian Christians who in the same circumstances, identical to him, were entirely different in their demeanor. They were peacefully holding each other's hands and singing hymns of praise to the Lord with smiles on their faces. And when he looked at those people utterly unafraid of death, confident in their Lord, whether they should live or die, he said to himself, I do not have what they have. And so when he reached London, he went to a meeting on Aldersgate Street, and that night someone stood up and read and preached from the book of Romans. And on May 24th, 1738, John Wesley wrote these words. About a quarter until nine, while he was reading, the change which God works in the heart of those who believe through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust in Christ and Christ alone for my salvation. Not quite as drastic as the Apostle Paul, hearing God's word, he suddenly felt his heart strangely warmed, but yet he realized in that moment his faith in Christ was true and it was in him alone for his salvation. And that quiet moment of warming of his heart changed his life and perspective entirely, just as it had for Paul. Subsequent history tells us that John Wesley went on to help spark the Great Awakening, founded the Methodist denomination, and through his preaching and influence, untold tens of thousands of people heard the gospel and believed in Christ as personal Savior. You see, just as with Paul, just as with John Wesley, everyone's personal journey with Christ must begin somewhere. And let me encourage you today that if your journey has not yet begun, it can begin today. Today can be your day to meet Jesus in a personal way through faith in who he is and what he has done. This is where the gospel-centered perspective of life must begin. And now, 
to continue to develop a gospel-centered perspective of life. Second, we remember that physical death is a doorway to eternal life. Physical death is a doorway to eternal life. We began with the Apostle Paul confined in a cold dungeon, facing his imminent death, and yet he was completely without regret or fear because he was so confident of where he was going. He wrote to Timothy these words, The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. I want you to underline the word will. Will. He doesn't say he might bring me to his heavenly kingdom. I hope he brings me to his heavenly kingdom. Paul writes, he will bring me to his heavenly kingdom. And in Philippians chapter 1, Paul wrote, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, some people might accuse Paul again of being suicidal. He was far from it. He just knew that death was not the doorway to the end. Death was the doorway to life eternal with his Lord and Savior. And so it held literally zero fear for him. In fact, he anticipated it. He didn't seek it but he anticipated it. And so armed with that gospel-centered perspective, Paul could face any danger without fear. He could face any trial, any opposition, because they simply would not deter him from living his life and the mission of the gospel to the fullest. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but this world is a dangerous place. Has anyone noticed that? Anyone notice that this, that this world is a dangerous place? In fact, I read, it, I read a study recently. And, and we all know about statistics, right? <laughs> we hear all about statistics these days. I read a study recently that the world is so dangerous that recent statistics reveal that not one of us is getting out alive. Isn't that pretty scary? Not one of us is getting out alive. Most recent statistics have, have said that. This past week, um, Ron Falk stopped by my office and he shared with me this joke that actually fits perfectly right here. And the joke is this. What has more lives than a cat? What has more lives than a cat? A frog, because it croaks every night. (laughs) And if you think that's good, well, the fact is that one day every last one of us is going to croak, right? Okay. (laughs) Thanks, Ron, for the joke, by the way. And well, here it is. Those recent statistics that continue to bear out to be true that not one of us is getting out of this life alive, if this life is all that there is, then that is really, really bad news. Really bad news. But as believers, it becomes really, really good news when we remind ourselves of this gospel truth that our physical death is but a doorway to eternal life with Christ in God's heavenly kingdom forever. And so as we consider all of the many things in this dangerous life, this dangerous world that we could die from, whether it's cancer, a car crash, whether COVID-19, a heart attack, war, famine, you name it, For the child of God, armed with the gospel-centered perspective, we need not fear any of them, because our life and our future is held secure in Christ. 
Remember, God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And of course, this doesn't mean that we go out foolishly looking for things that might prematurely cause our death. But neither do we shy away from threats or danger if it is in service to the gospel. Because the Apostle Paul certainly did not shy away. And so now lastly, to develop a gospel-centered perspective on life, we must daily preach the gospel to ourselves. We must daily preach the gospel to ourselves. You see, every day we have to remember that the power of the gospel is not only a past event, but an ongoing reality. Of this, Charles Spurgeon once said, the most important daily habit we can possess is to remind ourselves of the gospel. The most important daily habit, says the Prince of Preachers, is to remind ourselves every day of the gospel. You see, too often we think of the gospel as only being a past event where we first placed our faith in Christ for salvation, we checked that box off, and now I never really have to think about it again. But was that Paul's attitude towards it? Not even close. Because the gospel power that was at work that first day when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus was the same power that was so infusing him with life and vitality and excitement to continue to preach the gospel, to continue to live out the gospel. And so too for us, that same power that was at work the hour we first believed is the same power that is at work in our lives today. Quite simply, I need God's gospel power as much today as that day I first received it. There's a story of blue-collared worker named Don Calhoun. And Don Calhoun, he, he was just a poor working-class man. He, he worked at an office depot for $5 an hour. But one of his favorite things to do is when he could save up enough money, he would attend a Chicago Bulls basketball game. And so, attending that game, he strolled into Chicago Stadium, and a woman who worked for the Bulls organization approached him and told him that he had been selected to take part in a promotional event during the game called the Million Dollar Shot. The shot came during a timeout in the third quarter. If Calhoun could shoot a basket from 79 feet away, shooting from behind the free throw line on the opposite end of the court, he would win $1 million. Now, 18 other contestants had already tried this. None of them had made the shot. And in fact, out of 18, only one had even managed to hit the rim. And so here he is, number 19, He'd never even imagined trying a shot like this before. But when his time came, he took the ball, he walked out into the court, he looked over at Michael Jordan and the rest of the Bulls, and he could see that they were pulling for him. And so Calhoun stepped up to the line, he grabbed that basketball, he threw it like a football, and he let it fly. And as it left his hand, the coach, Phil Jackson, saw it arc up through the air, and he just said, It's good. And it was. The ball arced majestically through the air. It went through the basket in a clean swoosh. Nothing but net. The crowd went berserk. It later became known as the Immaculate Connection. And Calhoun rushed into the arms of Michael Jordan and the rest of the Bulls jumping up and down in complete excitement. 
And he was given the choice for his payment of a lump sum for that million dollars, which of course would, in, would involve all sorts of tax deductions, or he could be paid over time, and he chose the latter. And so when Don Calhoun went home that night, he had only two bucks in his wallet. That's all he had. But he would subsequently receive $50,000 every single year for the next 20 years of his life. And so it is when we first believe in Christ. It begins in that one moment, swoosh, a perfect moment, a moment of decision. But that life-changing power and impact carries on day after day, year after year. So you see, our need for the gospel doesn't end on day one. That is only the beginning. Because the gospel power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes continues on in our lives from the first day until that day when we will see Jesus face to face. So I pray today that each one of us would seek to develop, like Paul, a gospel-centered perspective on every sphere of our lives and that we would live it out, as Paul did, with enthusiasm in this world that so desperately needs good news. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this good news. And we thank you that this good news, though it is old news, is still the best news. Because it's for us. It's for us today, right here, right now. And Lord, if there's anyone present today, if there's anyone listening who realizes that they have not yet come to you in a personal encounter, through faith, to believe in you, Lord Jesus, the Savior, who died on the cross for our sins, who was resurrected from the grave, alive forevermore. I pray for the grace by your Holy Spirit in this moment to simply come to you in faith, and that perhaps, like John Wesley, even in this moment, find their hearts strangely warmed. And I pray for all of us who have encountered you, Lord Jesus, that we too would find our hearts strangely warmed, encouraged, lifted up by the gospel message to go out today to live it out boldly, fearlessly, knowing that nothing and no one, not Satan himself, not the grave and not death, can stop this gospel power, for it is the power unto salvation to everyone that believes. And amen, that includes me and my brothers and sisters present today. And so we bless your name and we go out in this gospel truth today. In Jesus' name, amen.